Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being with me today. Today, my guest is Stephen Diacutis, and if you're not familiar with Stephen, Stephen is a mixer, producer, and engineer based out of New Jersey who has worked with so many great artists such as Vanilla Fudge, Gladys Knight, Corey Glover, Cindy Lauper, and a whole bunch more. And in this conversation, we have a really cool chat about working with analog gear. And Stephen definitely is uh, primarily an analog guy, but we talk about Working with restrictions, which is definitely something that analog gear sometimes can put on you. And we talk about the idea of creating efficiencies with your workflow. And whether you're working with analog gear or not, efficiencies are an important part of your process. If you want to work fast, especially if you want to make money off of this or build a career off of this, you need to create systems for yourself to work fast and to be able to maximize your time. And what Steven does with his analog gear it definitely translates to a digital era. So in this conversation, we definitely chat about creating those efficiencies so that you can work faster, smarter, you can reduce some of the decisions that you need to make. That way you can stay a lot more creative and just be in the zone and get things right at the source and you know not be constantly thinking about a million other decisions that you need to make. So with that said, let's just jump right into this interview because I know you're going to find a ton of value out of it. Stephen Diacutis, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, Michael. How are you, buddy? Doing fantastic, man. For people who might not know your background and your story, how you got into music and ultimately into production and where you are today, can you give us can you give us that story? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I uh, as a youngster, I, I, I was always uh, I, I gravitated towards music. You know, I think that uh, that's a God given. Um, interest, you know, it, it's not something you have to look for. It finds you, you know, as, as you well know, um, I started when I was 12, I started playing drums and I quickly went to guitar and bass. And my father had a lot of, um, uh, stereo equipment and I gravitated towards his stereo equipment and, and, uh, some of the gear he had, he had a four track tape recorder, this was going back to like 1972. And um, so being a, being interested in music, being a musician and, and the fact that my dad had all this stereo equipment, it was kind of a perfect storm. So I got my early education pressing my dad's stereo equipment, playing with his pressing those buttons. Was he a musician himself? No, he was just a loved music, and um, at at some point he built a a music room in the basement, which you know became your playground. My first, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and I obviously, like all kids do, we we do things we shouldn't do, and I remember my dad specifically telling me, "You're not supposed to plug a bass guitar into the in." front the line input of my sylvania receiver you know so so that's where it started and um then i in high school i was fortunate enough to have a a class on multi-track recording which is was unheard of at the time um the school was a it was a brand new school it was 1978 
and they actually had a, a, a video studio and a recording studio, which, like I say, at the time was unheard of. It was really cutting edge. So I was able to take a class called Sound and the Tape Recorder, and the teacher was awesome. So the 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 combination of that particular opportunity, that kind of uh, class in high school, being a musician, already fooling around with tape recorders, and this gentleman who was a great teacher, this this was a this this was a really important time for me in terms of of uh, learning the craft. So I would say that was my early education in in. Uh, you know, recording and engineering and, and cutting my teeth as a musician. And my school was like, at the time, my schooling was, was the Beatles and Tony Iommi and Ace Freely. And, uh, you know, from there I went to Scorpions, Judas Priest, UFO, Al Demiola, you know, I was a guitar player that was my main instrument. So, um, and then from there, you know, uh, becoming a a local studio guy at as a um, guitar player, being hired as a guitar player, and being brought into s- studios around the area, uh, I managed to get the keys to a sixteen track two inch room, which was near my house. And at that point, I started doing sessions and getting paid. Nice. Um, the studio owner at the time. His name was Bob Bontempo. I would say he he was my first, besides Jerry Hotchberg, my teacher in high school, Bob Bontempo, the studio owner, he was my first serious mentor as, as a recording engineer. And um, he owned a 16-track, two-inch studio in Roselle Park, New Jersey called Homegrown Recording, gave me the keys so between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m., that was my home. <laughs> Take the late night shift. <laughs> yeah, he had a spec mixing board, which and Bob, Bob and uh, his partner at the time, Joe Erico, these guys were audio purists. So um, this and spec, there's a company called spec, and I believe they're still in operation has a great reputation for for point uh, uh, point to point circuitry and the least amount of electronics in the circuit to give you the pure you know the opportunity for the purest sound you know having the least amount of components from point A to point B conceptually is a good idea for sonic integrity. So the board I cut my teeth on was a, an old spec console which. And and a, an Ampex uh, two inch sixteen track, I believe, it was the MM eleven hundred or the MM twelve hundred. So, uh, my introduction to to professional audio was was pretty cool. You know that, yeah. that those are two pretty solid pieces of gear to start um, learning learning the craft and and learning how to use this craft to make a living. So that that was that, that was those were the beginning years, and um, that's amazing. And the fact that the yeah. fact that you said you even went to a high school that had classes like that, like I, I mean, I remember in my high school we had like audiovisual class, but it wasn't 
you know, we weren't really like learning audio very heavily. You know, it was like, let's get this like shitty little handheld video recorder and let's make a video. You know, that's all the stuff we did. It wasn't really like very intense into learning um, the pro audio side of it or, or really even getting deep with it. So the fact that you at least had that in high school, like and and the fact that your dad had all this equipment too, like it sounds like all your life you've just been growing up with this machinery. So it wasn't like it wasn't foreign to you. It was just like kind of meant to be. You were always playing with the stuff to begin with. Right. Well, my first, yes, my, my, I remember one Christmas. This is probably what really started it. Um, I, I, well, I was fascinated with reel to reel tapes. And I remember a, a couple of towns over, somebody was throwing out a boatload of reel to reel tapes. And I saw them in the garbage and I just walked toward, I just had to, had to go over there and, and walk towards them and just, Oh, I'm going to take these, you know, I just, for what I, I don't even, you know, I don't think I had a tape recorder <laughs> at the time. I just, I said, I want these. I was fascinated by reel to reel tapes. And then one, uh, one Christmas, my parents bought me a Norelco tape recorder, um, cassette. I think it was a cassette. Yeah. It was a cassette player. And it, and, uh, you know, it was, a, you could probably, I think I found one on eBay. Just, I was curious uh, one night. I was like, I wonder if uh, that tape recorder's on eBay. Bring back memories to see it, you know, <laughs> had a little speaker in it and you can, had a microphone and you could amplify your voice through, you know, through the speaker and also record it at the same time. So I started recording prank phone calls. <laughs> you know, I would put the mic somewhere. up. Yeah, this was one of my first recording ventures was recording prank phone calls. So <laughs> I'd put the mic up to the earpiece where you would hear. So I'd hear the person talking through the speaker on the cassette player. And I was making, pr- I, was, I was, I don't know if you ever heard of the Jerky Boys. I was just thinking, I was about to ask you about that. I was the original Jerky Boy. <laughs> the lamb. So, I mean, these are, these are the stupid activities that spawn this career. That's amazing. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you you were playing with all this equipment, just having fun, like making prank phone calls. Like, was were you thinking about this as like, oh, I'm a musician too. Like, I'm gonna record my own songs, or I'm gonna get into this as a business. Like, were were, were you even like processing that that this could be a future for you, or was it just like ah, just having fun? It quickly went down that road of you know. I remember trading a, or selling. A, somebody gave me a a Gibson. Les Paul that was sitting under his grandmother's bed. He just gave it to me. Hmm. And it happened to be one of those Les Pauls. It was an SG. Are you a guitar player? I'm a drummer primarily, but yeah, I'm familiar with all the guitar stuff. It it was Les Pauls, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe early Gibson SGs. I don't know why I want to say this, but I think they were called Les Pauls. It was a really early SG at the trapeze tailpiece. I mean, if you had one now, you know, it'd be f- five figures, I'm sure. Anyway, this particular one, the neck was broke at one point and I think fixed. So I, I don't think the value of it would be quite as... I'm sure it's still up there. Yeah. And I remember selling the guitar to buy a four-track tape recorder, a docator, which I set up in my bedroom. And I started recording, you know, my riffs, guitar riffs, and just overdubbing them, you know. So yeah, it all just naturally went down that road and what was the question mike <laughs> just yeah just like how you got to where you were so like you you started working at the studio you started putting in the the late night shift hours and, and started recording bands um 
But eventually you started working under a lot of other big producers, right? Yes. I answered an ad in the local um, newspaper, musician's newspaper. It was called the, the, the Aquarian. It was a Jersey paper. And, and you know, it's, it was like a musician's wanted kind of, you could, there was an a classified section where you could, people were looking for musicians or um, one day there, there happened to be a, an ad for an engineer uh, studio was looking for an engineer. And I was like, Oh, this is right up my alley. And it happened to be a studio probably about 20 minutes from where I was living at the time. And I went for the interview and the gentleman that uh, was running the ad, the uh, his name was Tony Camillo. His studio at the time was called venture recording, which is, was a studio in Somerville, New Jersey, Tony Camillo, if you, if you Google him, you'll, you'll see, you know, his credentials and, uh, just, he, he came up in Motown as an arranger and a producer. Uh, he, he actually, one of his claims to fame, I don't want to say claim to fame, but one of his gigs was doing the charts for Holland and Dozier. Uh, two of the producers that worked with all the, the Motown greats. Yeah. Stevie Wonders, the Diana Rosses, the Jackson Fives. You know, so Tony did a lot of work with Holland and Dozier and did a lot of work in Detroit and started put a studio together in Jersey. Long story short, he produced Midnight Train to Georgia. Wow. And, you know, parlayed a pretty significant career from that and, um, you know, and also a lot of the other things that he did. So I ended up becoming his head engineer over over at his studio and, and the engineers before me, the first, uh, Ed Stasium was, his, was his, Ed Stasium actually mixed Midnight Train to Georgia. And he was one of Tony's first engineers. Ed Stasium went on to do the Rolling Stones and Living Color and the Ramones, you know, a lot of a very, very huge successful acts. Ed's a monster, great ear. Anyway, I, 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 he preceded my time at Tony's and right before me, my dear friend, Dave Dominich. So Ed Stasium, then the next, the next in line with my buddy, Dave Dominich, who went on to do a lot of the Lenny Kravitz records and Ryan Adams, etc. And then, then I followed Dave. So these were the guys I was that whose shoulders I was looking over. That's amazing. Those are, those yeah. are good shoulders to look over. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I took a beating. I mean, I really got, you know, got the right education coming up and learned. I learned the trade the right way. You know, I learned early on that if it ain't right at the source, you're out of luck. Well, that, and know, that's, and that's, I think the magic of a lot of these guys, right. Is that they do spend that time to really get it right. And, and, and I, I firmly believe that you have to do that no matter, no matter what, like, who you're working with. It's like that, that is the goal is like, make it right at the source. Cause you can't fix it in the mix. There's only, or there's only so much you can do in the mix. Right. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, man, the end product is only going to be as as good as the sum of its parts. You know, get it every step of the way. If if you take your time and you do it right uh, on all levels, the end result is going to be that much better and that much easier to get it to be. It you know, it's 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 like if if you're dealing with something that's just been hasn't been put together at the highest level, you're going to put more time into it, and the results are going to be mediocre at best. Meanwhile, something that's done with care from point, from the beginning to the end is not only is it going to come together quicker and be a lot more enjoyable to work on, the end result is going to be 
so much better. So you're going to win on all levels if, if you do it right, you know, and, and, uh, and it's not hard to do it right. I mean, it really, it's, it's not, this is not brain surgery. This, this, is what we do, you know, just keep it clean. And it's all, it's also just like, if you're going to spend any time on it, do it at the beginning so that you're not spending so much extra time trying to fix the mistakes that you could have fixed a lot easier in the, in the early stages. Right. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, a good example is um, when you're when you're uh, writing, when you're in the studio and you're writing and you're laying down reference tracks, don't, don't lay down a reference track with the intention that ah, this is going to be a reference. I don't care what it sounds like or, or it's overloading. It's just, you know, that's fine. It's only a reference. You know what? That reference could be the best performance you ever lay down. It's true. So, mm-hmm. so. If you're going to lay down reference tracks, don't look at it like it's a reference track. Treat it like it's a f- that's going to be the final track that you're going to lay down for that particular because p- not only might it be, I'm here to tell you that that's happened to me. You know, there, there's been more than one occasion where I have not been able to recreate what I did when I was actually writing the piece. For sure, cuz you're you're in that moment, you're feeling those emotions and whatnot, and it's like the first time you're really expressing it. So, you know, why not capture the magic of that rather than trying to recreate it numerous times later on, right? Absolutely. You remember the movie Glenn Gary Glenn Ross? There was a it's a movie about um cold calling, cold calling and trying to sell people land like strangers like giving them the opportunity to buy land or whatever something to that and one of the one of the terms was always be closing and and i think about that anytime i'm i'm doing something in the studio you know do you know what i mean by that always 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 be closing always be putting down your best foot forward whatever you're doing Mm -hmm. yeah man i love that you take that philosophy and apply it to recording makes a lot of sense yeah, well, you know, again, being uh, knowing, knowing that being a person who's always dealing with the end, the the final stage of the process, you know, you learn that. Oh man, I I wish this this particular track was done with more care at the beginning of the process, because it's gonna it's going to come back to bite you later. Of course. And it's just like, like you said earlier too, it's, it's like the, when you put in the work up front and you get really good source tones, then everything else becomes easier beyond that. So like editing becomes easier because you don't have to fix a lot of mistakes or, you know, mixing becomes easier because now your tracks sound really tight and polished and they're, they're already good sounding. You know, you don't need to add a lot of processing after the fact to fix them up and make them sound different. You're, you're just working off of solid, a solid foundation. Yeah. 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 And and the joy of getting a multi-track session recorded by monster uh, producers and engineers and musicians, the joy of getting a session like that and, and bringing it up on the console and stemming it out without doing anything and hearing the, the hearing the, that level of work. It's it's like so it's such a wonderful moment in time for a mixer. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you get a session and you pull it up and you're like, okay, this is going to take a lot of work. I need to work in this area. I need to do, you know, you, you know, it's just I mean, which is fine. I mean, that's what we're hired to do. That's why we get hired to do this, because we make all of our 
assignments sound great. That's the job. But it's really nice to get a, 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 <laughs> a, a session that's just really well done, and you just pull up the the you pull up the the, the tracks, and you pull and you you and you're like, oh man, this is just oh, this is good. This is going to be wow. I don't have to do much here. I I hope I don't screw this up. Yeah, of course. I, I remember one of my early mentors, Jack Richardson, saying. You know, he's like, the goal is to make a meter stick bridge. And by that, he meant you could take a meter stick across the, the faders on a console and just pull them all up. And he's like, if you can get that so that like they're, you don't have to touch anything and it all sounds good, then you've done your job, right? <laughs> like he was like, get it. Just focus on everything like early on so you get the sounds dialed in and you shouldn't have to mess with it much. But, you know, that's, that's a challenge. It's not always as easy to do that. But but taking it from that approach of like, just try to make your life a lot easier down the road like that it makes things work so much better in the end. You know, now you, I think, I think you can get any multi-track recording you want now. Right. If you, I, a buddy of mine, I was at, his, I was at his uh, studio a while ago and he pulled up killer queen on his, on his console. He spread it out on the console and the thing was mixing itself as he was pulling up the, the, the stems, you know, the, because I mean, it was, I don't know, you know, I don't, I can't say what, when they mixed that, if it was, if everything was already stemmed and subgrouped or if, if it was, you know, how the, the, the tracks he was pulling up were already mixed, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. like the sound of the background vocals came up, it came up on two tracks. It was already stemmed out. It wasn't like, you yeah. know, 24 tracks of queen. But, but my point was, um, you know, the concept of stems stems is the new, the new lingo in, in modern day recording is stems. We invented stems <laughs> back in the day when we were working with four track and eight track and, and 16 track tape decks. We, we spent most of our lives doing subgroups and, and creating what is now called stems. Yeah. You had no choice. We, we, <laughs> Us old dudes, we invented stems. We, we that whole that whole concept of stems was was a necessity back in the day. You know, we spent we 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 would take uh, we would have a, a multi track, a sixteen track multi track, and we can oh, by the way we can only use fifteen tracks because we had to put this the code on the last track or even 14 tracks, because sometimes you had to leave a track in between the SMPTE code or the MIDI code or whatever code you were using at the time, leave it. Track 16 would have the code track 15 would have the crosstalk. So you'd have, you, you couldn't put anything on track <laughs> 15 because it would disturb track 16 and throw the code off to whatever synchronizer it was going to. So you'd have 14 tracks. So here, here we would have 14 tracks of of audio and we would need the big 80s background vocal it was time for the big 80s background vocal uh treatment that we needed the the Def Leppard um you know massive gang queen, vocal you know, the massive vocal uh, production that we needed back then and we'd have no tracks left <laughs> so you know we'd have to make us a a, a, a a rough mix of the 14 tracks dump that over to a two track back that we'd have to fly that back over to the two inch on a fresh piece of tape do 12 tracks of backup vocals and then subgroup those with eq and and compression and whatever else we wanted to and the blend we'd have we'd have to get the blend right because that was 
going to be recorded to two tracks and then back to the original multi-track. <laughs> we have it so easy these days. There's the concept of subgroups and stems, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know why I went off on a stem tangent there, but. Well, don't get Bob Clearmountain going on it either because he just hates that term because people mess it up all the time, right? <laughs> people mean it. People talk talk about stems all the time thinking it's uh, just multi-track st- or multi-track tracks. But yeah, well, you know, it, it became the, the language of, of the new generation. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so it sounds like you had some really great mentors growing up. And I, I was reading on your website, you, you had the opportunity to work under Andy Wallace and Kevin Shirley as well, right? Mm. How did that come about? I did a record with Kevin Shirley in 96 as an artist. I was with a band that I produced or in the early 90s at Tony Camillo's studio. And that record that I produced ended up getting assigned to Sony uh, under um, John Kalodner. It was our A&R. And at the time, Kevin Shirley had just come off the Silver Chair success and he, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how he became friends with John Kalodner, but John at the time was, was, uh, giving Kevin a lot of, a lot of the Sony work. And, uh, John happened to assign Kevin to our, our record. And, um, so we, I spent a good three or four months in, uh, in, um, at Rumbo recording in Canoga Park, um, Captain and Tennille studio where they did Appetite for Destruction. Cool. And yeah, we, we did a, we did a great rock record there. That's amazing. As a, again, I was, you know, at the, I was a guitar player. I was, you were in the band was, at that time, but you know, being, being an engineer, you know, and learned so much from, from Kevin, Kevin, uh, I'll never forget after the first day of tracking, walking into the control room, listening to the, uh, playback that he had set up. I'll get it. I'll never forget getting pummeled from, from his, uh, you know, he's just, he has a great, um, great ear, you know, just great. So, so yeah. I, and Kevin really, uh, I was never back in the day. I, I was always fascinated by samples and how, how uh samples were utilized in the 80s and how well uh the the guys were were implementing those samples on at that time because it was you know anytime i tried to fool around with drum replacing or samples back then i i just remember having such a difficult time with flaming and phase issues and and i always i was always really respected the way you know, the, like those Kiss records, some of those, you know, those '80s recordings, the, the the way they really perfected getting those samples to work and getting the drums to sound huge, but not, you know, they sounded huge, but they sounded great. They did it really well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you listen to it and go, "Man, something just doesn't sound right." And the, and the technology back then was limited for that. I mean, now it's a no brainer, you know, samples and sound replacement. Now, you, you know, you could do it in your laying in bed with your laptop and, and the programs and the technology. It's just, it's effortless now, but man, back then it was no joke pulling that off. <laughs> Kevin nailed it, man. Kevin, uh, you could hear the ghost notes on the snare and this, you know, I was like, man, what's he, wow. He did it with the AMS, you know, with the AMS sampler. You know, so after I did that record, I came back to my studio and I was, you know, fooling around again with, you know, because back then I was still recording on two inch and we were recording on two inch. 
you know, we weren't recording in the computer mm-hmm. in 1996. Yeah. So you, you got to get creative with the way you do all that stuff, you know? And, and you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I had a Simmons device I was using at the time. I don't I can't even remember exactly. I was using a Simmons MIDI device to use MIDI to trigger audio to, to, you know, for, for sampling. <laughs> I mean, anyway, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how far technology has come down. And like, now you just throw like slate trigger on and it's, it's done, you know, <laughs> man, I mean, it's, it's, um, yes, it, it is. It's, it's now it's, it's a no brainer, but I mean, drum replacing in the eighties and nineties, I mean, they're, that that needs to be addressed in a in a tutorial. I think that that might be in my future very soon. That'd be awesome. That was an accomplishment. There is something fun to like, I mean, there is some something fun to the idea of like recording the way things used to be, you know, like going back to like a four track recorder or adding those restrictions on yourself to to challenge yourself. It, it almost forces you to become a better engineer because you're you're thinking about the music in a different way because you're not thinking about like, oh, I can easily fix this in the mix later on. It's like you, you're just really focused on like getting the best sounds at the source and and um, working within those restrictions. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. I, I would recommend youngsters spend some time and, and just just, yeah, do some old school recordings just to have that you know, those chops under your belt, you know, I mean, if you got the time, (laughs) why not? As, as a, as a lover of, of the, of this, this, uh, thing we do, you know, why not, you know, go down that road, you know, why not? Um, if you're not interested and you're happy, seeing guys like me talk about guys like us talk about it and, and watching some, some old footage on it. And that that's good enough for you. That's fine. But if you're curious, you know, as a lover of this technology and the, and the, the art form, sure, man, why not? Why not like say, Hey man, I'm going to, I got a, I got a project I want to do and I'm going to do it old school. I'm not going to, I'm not going to open my door and, and do 10 tracks of, of a, of guitar and not worry about where I punch in or how I punch in. You know, when we were recording on tape, we had to punch in, in the right spot. We couldn't get in a bar soon and then, then cut it together later, pull it back. You know, you take the wave and you pull it back <laughs> or you pull it forward and then you crossfade it. We couldn't do that back then. We had a punch in on, I remember punching in on, on words, yeah. words or on the, <laughs> Hey man, I need an S at the end of that word. I'll punch the S man, run it. I, you're going to punch the S. Yes. I'm going to punch the S watch <laughs> me. And I did it. <laughs> it's yeah. It's amazing. It's funny. Cause I was watching, I, I saw that lately you've been doing TikTok videos and I saw that you made one about editing and cutting out a word with analog tape. And it's just like to see it be done again, you know, is like, it's, it's amazing to watch that kind of stuff and see the, the well, work that went into pride it. in that stuff. That was spot erasing. Okay. That's when you needed to, you know, you, that's when you didn't have the guts to do it on the fly. You know, that's when we're like, listen, man, I'm just going to go in and find it, mark it and wipe it. But there were times where we were like, no, nah, I'll punch that. I got it. You know? Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the tape record, the, the guys building the tape recorders needed to come up with the te- quick punch technology <laughs> for guys like us, because there was a time when you, you know, you, when you punched in on a tape recorder, it didn't get right in. 
Yeah. It, it, w- it would get in a, uh, maybe, a, you know, however many milliseconds before you actually punched. So you would have to time your punch. Like if, if the punch was on the downbeat, you'd have to punch in like on the end of four. If, if you wanted to get the punch right, yeah. you'd have to compensate for the, for the, uh, the technology be not quite being up to snuff, but then, but then the tape, then the, then Studer and MCI and all the guys making these tape recorders, the technicians came up with the quick quick punch technology. So as soon as you punched, you were in business. Yeah, it's funny because I always hear people say like or joke around that engi- all drummers want to be engineers and all engineers want to be drummers. And a part of me like maybe, maybe because I'm a drummer, you, it sounds like you, you play drums too. It's like I wonder if the reason behind part of that is just like. To, to do with locking and like being super on time with your punch-ins like you like drummers were really good at that because they had that internal clock M- maybe that has something to do with it i don't know <laughs> there was a, a really great movie movie about james brown and and recently and the star of the movie was uh, chaswick boswell i forget exactly how to pronounce his name because i'm an airhead what a wonderful actor and what a wonderful job he did as James Brown. Anyway, there was a part in the movie where they were rehearsing and James Brown had, had referenced all the instruments as drums. Like he asked, uh, the, 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 he asked the sax player, he said, what instrument do you have in your hand? He said, he said, a sax. He said, no, what instrument do you have in your <laughs> hand? He's a drum. Yes. A drum. So you, yes, you, you can look at the tape recorder and this, you know, engineering, we have to have good, rhythmic instincts and you know just uh to to be engineers especially back then when you had to get the punch right you didn't have an opportunity to screw it up and i'm sure there were a lot of occasions where if an engineer punched in in the wrong spot he there was hell to pay oh yeah because if you mess it up you're you now have to not just punch in that one spot you intended on but fix the part before that too to make it all sound natural Exactly. And so, yeah, you're uh, having drum drummers chops is, is, a you know, if you're, if, if you're coming up in music, you know, if you're a parent, I would always suggest that that you give your kid drum lessons before you do anything, start them out on drums. Of course, parents are going to hate me for saying (laughs) that because no parent wants a drum set in the, in the basement, but having, yeah, that, that's a piano and drums. The, could be very are very good instruments to start out on just to get yourself your foundation set up for wherever you go from there totally agree with that yes excellent point michael excellent uh, thank point. you thank you um when i look at your st- pictures of your studio like it looks like you have a lot of analog gear and like seems like you collect a lot of that and you got obviously got the console and you know all these vintage eqs and compressors and stuff like that are you pretty much mixing all in, like in a lot of analog these days, or are you mixing in the box? Like, wh- what are you currently doing these days? I'm mixing. I'm using uh, Cubase mostly to mix, and I mix on a console, which has fader and mute automation. Um, so I don't mix entirely in the computer. I'm still a slave to the hardware, and. Um, I don't, I think I've done one or two or three modestly serious rough mixes in my life, totally in the computer, but that's about it. I've, I've, I don't think I, I, you know what? I think I have done a couple of 
mixes in the computer uh, in my in the last f- ten years. But for the most part, I'm my day to day is on a on a mixing console. I guess if you got the gear, why not use it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's the way I like to work, and my my workload doesn't demand that I have massive recall uh, capabilities at the moment. You know, mm-hmm. if if I was if I was mixing three or four records at the same time that had massive had had real crucial deadlines, then I I might not have a choice. But I don't have that scenario. So I'm able to mix on my console and I mix on my terms on my time. So in today's day and age, it's very difficult to be a mixer mixing on hardware with, with the demands of recall. But the fact that I'm able to set up my, my workload at my convenience, I'm, I'm able to do it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that definitely opens up a lot more possibility because yeah, the recall thing, if you've got the time for it, then you know, you can just leave your board set up and walk away, come back another day, whatever. It's, it's all good, right? Yeah, for the most part. The, the problem with hardware recall is it's not very efficient. I mean, it, the concept of it should work, but unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that if you, if you do a mix in June and then pull it back up in, in October or, or December, or where, the odds of it coming back exactly the same way are pretty thin. And sometimes it comes back like way off and you're like, why is this happening? It's the same (laughs) settings. What am I doing? What? And I look around the room, what's turned off? Something's got to be turned off because this mix should not sound this different. (laughs) So, but there's times when, you know, I mean, like there's times when you pull it up and go, wow, this is eerily close to what it was. You know, what did I do right? Yeah. Um, Well, you mentioned an interesting point. You talked about the like efficiency and, um, you know, obviously digital, it's like so efficient to work in that. And you can have you have all that recall. What are some of the efficiencies that you've built into your systems using an analog system? Because I feel like, yeah, like you said, it is a bit of a slower method to work. And, and you're going into that knowing that. But you still want to create some sort of workflow that allows you to work as fast as you can with what you've got. So what are some sort of systems that you've built for yourself to allow you to work faster? I don't touch the patch bay. The patch bay. Um, okay. That's an excellent question. And, and, uh, what I will say, um, as far as the arrogance of running my day to day on hardware in today's day and age, the compromise is that I don't touch any knobs in here. <laughs> you know, the, I'll be, I'm happy to be able to do this. The compromise being just don't touch any knobs. Cause if you're going to have any shot at, at having some sort of a recall situation, you know, don't think, don't think you're going to be able to go changing all your hardware on every mix you do, because then, then your recall, there's no way you're going to come in here with a, a piece of paper documenting the settings on every single piece of gear you have. It's just not going to happen. So I leave for the most part, I just leave my hardware set up the way it is. And any not 90% of my changes happen in the box. So that gives me a shot at having some sort of a recall situation. Gotcha. So as far as leaving your gear untouched, like 
you know, again, when I look at your pictures, of your, pictures of your studio, you've got all these compressors and EQ units and stuff like that. And like, you know, I think most people listening to this would be like, oh, I want to play with this and like, you know, adjust the attack settings or whatever on the compressor. Like, are you just recording things at a very consistent level so that it's always hitting those devices the way you want them to be hit? That's ex that's exactly the, the case. And, and I'll, I'll even go. Yeah, I'll go one further. My mixing console is every session I pull up, every source ends up on the same fader, meaning channel one on my desk is always bass. Channel two is always foot. Channel three is always snare. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. every my channels on the desk are all assigned for certain elements. So I can mix five records in a row. Look, if you're, do, if you're mixing five records in a row, it's safe to assume each record's going to have bass, rock drums, doubled guitars, lead guitars, vocals, some keyboards or whatever. So my console, every one of those instruments shows up in the same spot on my console. So that's that equates to convenience. And as far as levels are concerned, yes, exactly what you said. I mean, my my... The, le the way I set up my levels coming out of the DAW, for the most part, are going to be very similar from project to project. So they're going to hit my outboard in similar ways. So if I set up a compressor for a record on Monday, that com on next Monday, the next record, that compressor is going to behave the same way because I'm setting up my gain structure very similar to the previous records. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that anyone who's listening to this, like this doesn't just apply to the world of analog. You could absolutely do this in a digital template as well. You know, if you have your track set up the same way, same order, you know, you've got your kick on track one or tra whatever, you know, like you can, you can always position things a certain way. You can hit the same levels and have your plugins on those channels. And it's always going to react the same way. As long as you're hitting it with a similar level, the songs will sound different just because of the fact that they're different songs and different notes and whatnot. But it's going to react in a very similar way if you're hitting with the same levels. I'll set, let yeah, me add I, to that scenario. The concept of not touching your outboard, not, not changing any of the settings. First of all, there comes a time where I do go, you know, it's not like they stay static for two years. I mean, you know, I do occasionally switch up some patches or change some things like, you know, my, my two bus, my my two bus at the moment has a certain configuration of gear, but you know I'll wake up on a, one day and I'll be like, you know what, I'm going to change things up. So I'll, you know, and I'll probably think of it the night before when I'm laying in bed. You know, think about man, I'd really like to put the the impressor on the two bus for a while. You know, or you know, because I have so much, I have so many compressors that are two bus candidates that are like my. You know, my impressor right now is is on the kick and the snare. You know, that that, that, that compressor is a wonderful candidate for the two bus. Or I have a, a couple of Ear six sixties that are on the vocals right now, which are great vocal compressors. But man, are they great two bus compressors? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So one day I may wake up, you know, I'm putting the, I'm going to put the ears on the two bus for a while. You know, just to break it up, and you you know, you're not losing anything by doing that. But I will say this regarding leaving your outboard static for a while. You got to turn those knobs, man. Cause if those knobs <laughs> don't get turned, they will, they will not like 
they will not be happy knobs after a while. You you, you got to exercise these knobs. They, <laughs> the, um, analog knobs, analog gear does not want to be static for too long. You gotta you gotta exercise switches and knobs. Yeah, uh, so that that's one one thing that I will say to, to anybody who's going to go down that road. Make sure it's it's the same thing with you know. Same thing with human beings. We got to move. We got to go out and walk. We got to move. If we don't move, stuff gets stiff and it stops working. So it's, you know, same thing with, with, with gear, analog gear. Yeah, of course. Not so much, not so much with, with, with a, you know, a plug-in, you know, those knobs never get dirty. The the SSL. (laughs) Those are pretty consistent. (laughs) They they never go out of calibration or, you know, ever get dirty or caps never leak in the plugins, you know? Yeah. They don't, they don't age. They just stay the same. (laughs) Well, that's a really good point too. And, and yeah, I think it is important to address that too, because I think the, the tendency people have with analog gear is that you, you do have this physical surface that you can touch and play with the knobs and, you know, I, I think people just are infatuated with that concept rather than just adjusting a mouse and, and you know, clicking something on the screen. So, like, p- people do want to mess around with things, but there's a point where, you know, if you just keep messing around with it too much, it, it every recall is different or it just starts to slow down your process because you're kind of always starting from scratch rather than working off of a foundation that just works and that gets you up and running quickly, right? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're running a business, I mean, if if you're doing this, if you if you have a studio with hardware and you're doing it just for yourself or whatever, you might have the luxury of being able to go down that road. I mean, back in the day, studios, the the engine, the assistant engineers would come in after a session, and they would normal the board. Mm-hmm. So, so the next day, the, the the back in the day, studios had a different engineer in the room every day for the most part. And when a new engineer came in on on Tuesday morning, he needed to have a board that was zeroed. You know, he he wasn't going to come in and work on a board that was set up for the previous session. Mm-hmm. So at, at two in the morning, three in the morning, after a twelve hour session, the assistant agent engineer came in with a with a piece of paper, documented the settings on all the gear, and then zeroed out the board. It was like a two-hour process. Imagine. Yeah. That's that's how things happened back then. You know, you, you zeroed out the board. This is this is why budgets were a lot bigger back in the day, because you had to factor in all of the time. Whereas now everyone just wants it quick, right? So you, you pay less money for it, I guess. I mean technology changed the, the the you know the whole deal. I mean, there was one studio I worked at where not only did I have to zero the board, I had a vacuum. <laughs> well, make, I mean, hey, you gotta you gotta make your studio a nice, clean place that people are comfortable in, and you know that's important too. Yeah, man. I mean, um, there was a point where I I I would after a mix session, I would pull all the the patches out of the patch bay and the next mix session i'd start from scratch i would go hmm what do i want you to what do i want to use on the kick drum for this mix what do i you know like i would pick and choose different pieces of gear now the patch bay is set so that you know okay the the uh the stc8 compressor is going to live live on the um the vocals for the next six months (laughs) you know yeah it's it's not like every day well, you, pr- you probably found that every time you were starting from scratch, you were putting things in the same spot and that 
or and then at that point you might as well just leave it right no 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 okay. I, no when i started from scratch i was i was literally starting from scratch and and making different decisions but there came a point where i was like you know what i'm not that pat the patch bay is is not change again I, I have an analog patch bay here, quarter inch analog patch bay. I mean, this it's it's Abe Lincoln probably used <laughs> the patch bay that I have. And you got again, speaking of you know physical components and, and turning knobs, those patch points need to be exercised as well. You can't just leave those plugs in the patch bay without actually exercising them every now and again because they get corroded. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's a whole nother thing. But yeah. the patch bay, if I ever have to go over to that patch bay and do anything, I tell people to go go have like go go take a, a two hour <laughs> walk because when I go over to that patch bay, I, I gotta put on a mining helmet it's, and just like make myself comfortable because it, it's it's the the most horrible moment in in the life of a of a studio <laughs> engineer in this particular scenario yeah of course <laughs> but anyway that patch bay does not get touched i don't even like to look at it like just it's like skull and crossbones over there love it <laughs> but there came a point where i was like i can't touch any of this hardware it, it's got to stay the way it is that's it you know yeah. and count my blessings that I'm able to use hardware at this stage of the game. And, and to some degree, it's kind of going back to what we talked about earlier about having some of those limitations or restrictions on you. Like if, if, if your patch base is just set up that way, then you work with what you've got and it forces you to think differently again, you know, rather than every, every session is like a blank slate and overwhelming with decisions. Like you, you're just working, you've got rid of a lot of those decisions that you probably are going to make anyway. So, you know, it's, it's, it's well, built in for that's you. That's a great, great point because decisions, you know, when you're trying to work, when you're trying to get things done, having less decisions is, is, a, is a big deal. You know, it's like, because there's enough to do as it is, you know, mixing the work we do the, is, it's, you know, mixing is no joke. I mean, it's not an easy gig, you know, and it's not like, you're guaranteed to 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 hit a home run every time. You know, you you got to go in there and you got to make it happen. You got to go. You know, you got to bring. You got to bring at the by the time you get done with a mix and you hit play. You know, you have to hit a home run. You got to try to hit a home run every single time, and that takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of decisions, and a lot of things will work from mix to mix. But every mix has brings different challenges. You know, every mix you'll find some like you'll be like, "Holy shit!" I didn't excuse my language. I didn't expect that to happen. You know, I you know, wow! I gotta okay, I gotta figure out how to make this work. Mm -hmm. You know, and so taking a lot of that other stuff out of the equation is is good because believe me, when you pull up a file and you start mixing something, there's going to be enough surprises. <laughs> of course, yeah, and it's it's always going to be different, if, especially if you're not. If you're just the one mixing it and you're not the one producing it, if you're one, if you're the one producing it, you're kind of working probably with a similar sort of uh, flow every time or similar mic selection or whatever, especially if it's like a home studio, you might have limited gear available. Right. But uh, if you're just mixing someone else's projects and you're working with whatever tools that they had, whatever creative process they had, like every every mix is going to sound totally different. And that's going to be the puzzle that you got to piece together. Right.
Yes, uh, when you when you're mixing your own productions, I I believe that there is a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of those questions that are taken out of the equation. I think you know you, the fact that you're able to engineer your own stuff and and do things based on how you think it's going to be when you mix it can can uh, speed things up, make things easier. Um, when when you interesting thing about is when you're working on a recording, working on somebody's project, then you are working with somebody else's tracking and somebody else's production ideas. And you're pulling up those reference tracks and you're tracking a vocal with the artists. When you get to the mix stage, you, 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 you find out that's when you st you start finding out what those reference tracks, where those reference tracks are going to make sense, or how they're going to make sense. You know, when you're just pulling them up for for the sake of of uh, uh, you know a reference mix for somebody to track to, you you're not paying any much mind to them. You know, they're in there. You pull them up. You EQ them. You know, you just got a little bit of a level. And then then when you get to the mix stage, you start to find out where those tracks are going to, how and where, and if they're going to make sense, mm -hmm. you know, you, you might find that those three or four keyboard pads that you've been dealing with for the last week while you were tracking a vocal, there's really only room for one or two of them when you get to the big stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like at that point, it's just prioritizing what's important and, you know, getting trimming the fat, so to speak of, you know, what's in your production and, what's really contributing to the overall big picture of it and what's taking away from it. Right. And that, that, that can even happen on your own productions. You, you ever notice when you're producing your own records and you start piling on information, how much of it just doesn't make the final mix. Yeah. It, I mean, especially in digital, it's like you have infinite number of tracks. You can experiment, you can add 30 layers of keyboard pads or whatever to make this ultimate sound. And then you realize afterwards, like you didn't need, 30 of them. You needed one. <laughs> well, the, the other, the other thing about that kind of, that concept is when you, when you come up with a sound and you put it on the whole song and you, you, and you end up getting to the mix stage and you use like one bar of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that one bar was worth the two hours you just spent tracking it on the whole song. You're, you know, it goes, Oh man, that's a great, that part, that sound is great. You get you get to the mix stage. You're like, oh, it only works here for for literally two seconds, but it was worth it. Yep. But I guess this all comes back down to your earlier point of when you're just laying down tracks to to make a you know to make a demo. Like most people just kind of lay things down and don't even think about it. But to your point, it's like get it sounding really good, and then if you have to trim it later, then so be it. But like at least you had an amazing sounding recording from the start that you can work with moving to the end and then you know you just decide when when and where to use it the way you learn that lesson is the times that you've had to use reference tracks and they were just awful <laughs> you're like man i wish i would have taken more time when i tracked this yeah that makes a lot of sense you know the the beauty of when you're tracking guitars the the concept of recording a di you know with the whole reamping the the whole concept of reamping having a di track is is it's just such a lovely thought you know of course. It's, it's like you're never you you're you're forever free you know it's like and i i happen to have a, a building full of 
guitar amps here. So if I have a, I've had sessions sent to me with guitar tracks that probably are not the best sounding guitar tracks for the situation. And if I just had a DI, you know, yeah, no, that's a good point. Like just sometimes these tools that we use in the recording process, they don't even make, we don't hear them in the final records that we listen to, but we make these decisions to track with a DI, for example, as this like safety net tool or something that helps us in editing. Like there's, it's not just always what you hear that makes the final mix. It's it's some of these like creative um, tool decisions that you have to make in the in the process. Hopefully that makes sense. What I just said there. Well, you know, I mean, the concept of of DI recording, you know, it's it, it's also has to do with the situation and whether or not you know your intention is to to send it to a specific. Uh, studio to have them reamp your, t- you know, I mean, there's guys that just reamp, there's guys that specialize mm-hmm. in just reamping, you know, and not to mention, you know, if, if you're in a situation where there's just not a, a, a good rig to cut through, but the beauty of having the, the, um, you know, to be able to, to have that option to, to just lay down a DI and then later have somebody put it through a diesel, you know, with, with a, a, a full stack of mics and you know it's or you know it's 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 a wonderful thing yeah of course i 100 percent agree with that and uh yeah to your to your point too it's like there are people that just, that just specialize in that the people that have people like yourself that have a room full of nice amps and that know how to get really good guitar tones and and you know so there's there is a benefit to having these di tracks so that they can send them to someone like you or whoever else and, and get these amazing tones after the fact well not not only that but I mean, I have, um, I'm set up right now where it literally takes me five minutes to record through a Friedman and a, and a, and a Sur stereo a rig going through two vintage Marshall 412 cabinets with Royer mics on them. You know, it's, it's ready to go, ready to go. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and, through, and the mic pre, you know, through wonderful mic pre's. So, I mean, it's effortless to just take a DI and 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 literally ten minutes later have this world class guitar recording on on a on a on a on a file on a session. I mean, I've had I've had tracks that were done. I was I've been I've mixed records and the the tracks were done through whatever simulator sim, simulator. And you know sometimes sometimes there's only so much you can do with, with, with audio, Mm -hmm. you know, if the body is not there to begin with, it's really, sometimes it's really difficult to pull that in, you know, the body of a rock guitar, the low mids, the punch, you know, if that's not, if that doesn't actually reside in that, in that file and that on that track, sometimes it's tricky to pull that in with an EQ or, or with a transient design or something, you know, or whatever transient EQ, so if there was only a DI, <laughs> I would have not have spent the last 45 minutes EQing, you know, a track that once I finished EQing it was still not that great. Of course. Well, speaking of guitar tones, uh, I saw that recently you had posted a, a great TikTok video, by the way, of uh, your approach for getting guitar tones and, and mic positioning. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe explain kind of your approach when it comes to tracking guitar amps and how you find that optimal position for mic positioning. And people should be watching the video as well. But if you can explain it here, that'd be great. 
Well, I, I used to put my ear up. I used to ask the guy, can you play, please? And I'd go down to the, the amp, the cabinet room, and I would literally just put my ear up to the cone. And wherever my ear found the sweet spot, I'd take my finger, put it by my ear, and press it up against the grill to where my ear was hearing the sweet spot and just put the mic in front of that. And I would do that, you know, I mean, pretty much, you know, I wasn't the kind of guy who just took a piece of tape and marked it off because I'd literally want to go hear it and know for sure where I was putting that mic. That's where I'm going to get, you know, the, 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 what I wanted to get. Uh, so, or, you know, a lot of guys, take a flashlight and just shine it into the grill and see where the cone is and put the mic, you know, in a certain spot, which is cool. But the, the, the video that I posted was actually what, uh, which is a very valid way of, of doing it is to, um, crank the amp so that it's, it's, you know, it's putting out a good amount of amp noise. Just like, let's call it white noise for, for, and go, you know, just throw throw some headphones on. Go to the cabinet room, throw some headphones on, and literally just sweep the mic across the cone until you hear the white noise. You can hear, you could tell when it's got what it what what you need. We're going to need to get the right guitar tone, and and that's you know. Plus, you can control the volume so you don't kill your ears. Um. And you could do this, you know, you could do that with two mics, you know, you could kind of like start positioning the mics where and you could kind of tell when the phase is right, because there's a certain comb filtering you hear when you're using two mics and you could tell, okay, that's not going to s- sound good when I run a guitar through it. But, um, yeah, so that, that kind of that point where you're hearing the, uh, you're hearing the sound really thin out. That's when you would know it's out of phase, right? Yeah. It's, uh, the, at the end of the day, the concept of out of phase is usually losing all that, you know, low, low mid range, um, elimination, you know, like when, when, when two, when an element, two elements are in phase with each other, usually you get more low end or low mids. That's when, you know, you're, you're, uh, in the ballpark phase wise. So yeah, if it starts to thin out, you, you know, you're not going in the right direction, but also there's that, that comb filtering effect you'll hear, which is almost like a, like a wah-wah pedal, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, phasing, you know, again, the, the, you know, if you're recording those two mics on separate tracks, you know, you're, you only need to get the phase close because now you've, you've got uh, auto align, which is a program that will take care of the phase problems for you. You just, (laughs) You know, feed it the right information and hit a hit your your space bar or your you know click your mouse and thirty five seconds <laughs> later you're in phase. <laughs> but uh, but that's that's uh, one one way to uh, to position your guitar mic. You know, but you know what, man? I mean, my sweet spot might not be your sweet spot. Fair. You know what I mean? Like, so if I'm gonna position my mic in a certain place. And and usually I like to get it on the cone so I get all that upper mid range and all that top. That might be too bright for some cats. You know, you might want to take that mic and angle it over to the cone so it gets a little warmer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a great point. I think that's a great point because I think people 
especially early on when they're first getting into audio engineering, it's almost like they, they a lot of people think there's like one way to do everything. And there certainly isn't. There's your creative vision is always the most important thing. And if you want your guitars to sound dark, then make them sound dark. If you want them to sound harsh and fizzy, do that. You know, like there's no right or wrong as long as you're getting the sound that you envision for your creative project. So, yeah, but that all goes back to get it right at the source. Of course. You know, if you, if you angle that mic the way you want it to sound, it's less work you have to do later. And um, there, you know, like you, you, what you just said, there's no right or wrong. That's pretty much the law of what we do. You know, it's, there's, I mean, to a degree, I mean, yes, there is a, there are, you can apply right and right or wrong to some things, but at the end of the day, everything we do is, is comes down to somebody's personal taste. Of course. You know, my, if my idea of a good guitar sound with two mics being in phase, somebody else might be appalled by it and be like, I liked them. I liked it better when it was out of phase, you know? So, yeah, that's a good point. Some people might like that sound. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great spot to wrap up. It kind of brings it all full circle. Um, Stephen, thank you for taking the time to, to do this. If people want to learn more about you and your studio or possibly even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I do have a website. Uh, it's um, soundspa.net. That's soundspa, S-P-A, okay. .net. And um, although I don't update it as often as I should, there, there's a good amount of of information on there and um so yeah that would be the that would be the main place to go i also have a uh, some music out there um i did a record um a couple of years ago with a singer by the name of Corey glover he's the singer for a band called living color you might have heard of a song called cult of personality uh, i did a record with Corey that i'm real proud of it's called torn from the pages and Anybody here listening to this, if you have a minute to check that out, I have a couple videos on YouTube um, with Corey. Uh, one song is called Final Resting Place, and the other one is called Your Time Has Run Out. So that there's a couple pieces of work that I'm real proud of if you want to take a look at that. And I got my, you know, I, these days I've been doing a lot of TikTok videos. I've taken a real, I've, I've really found the, enjoyment in making these short tutorials and and the fact that you can only do either 15 second one minute or three minute videos i usually try to keep the videos to one minute it's really nice to to learn how to get a lot of information into that one minute or one and a half minute span of time you know so i've learned how to cut through a lot of the fat to get the point across so um yeah if you if you uh, go to TikTok at Stephen D. Acutis in t the TikTok world. You, you, there's quite a few videos on there. I also have a YouTube channel, but I haven't quite got that um, caught up to all the content I have on TikTok. Yeah, but the TikTok videos look amazing, man. Like from what I saw of them, uh, yeah, it's like you said, it's like right to the point. You're getting some solid information, and and also the fact that you do have so much analog gear, I think, kind of gives people a difference in perspective as well. You know, it's not just staring at a computer screen. So um, there's definitely lots of cool techniques to pick up on. And I, and I do when I do the TikTok videos, I you know I run the audio right through the Neve or right you know I everything is as you would hear it if you were in the studio. So if you throw on a set of headphones or if you play those TikTok videos through your monitors, you're going to hear you're going to hear what what I'm hearing in my studio, and you're going you know you're going to hear the Neve and you're going to hear the MCI and all the hard you know you 
I mean, it's a, you'll hear the Shadow Hills mastering compressor, the hardware, you know, just by watching a TikTok video. <laughs> Unheard of. That's awesome. Well, well, yeah. well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. I had a good time talking. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, it's all good, man. So that was my interview with Stephen Diacutis, and I love his philosophies on how he approaches his sessions and how he gets things right at the source and how he takes the time up front and how he likes to reduce the number of decisions that he has to make by building efficiencies within his workflow. And I think a lot of this stuff definitely applies in the digital era. And, you know, like we were talking about in the interview, you know, things as little as where you position your tracks or what compressors you're going to have on your snare track or what levels are you going to hit? These are things that when you establish them early and you just build them into your routine, it makes your process go a lot faster and you're not as overwhelmed by all of the decisions that you have to make. So, so yeah, I just love Steven's approach to all of this. And I think that it's definitely very relevant. And I, I highly encourage you to analyze your own processes and see where you can make efficiencies for yourself. You know, see what gear you're always using. How do you automate that? Maybe it's building a template. Maybe it's setting up your patch base so that you don't have to repatch everything every time, right? All of these little decisions will save you time and make you work more efficiently. And that's ultimately going to give you more creativity. So I hope that you found that helpful and that you found it inspiring. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. I've got tons of great resources on that website designed to help you make pro sounding recordings from your home studio and how to make your process much more efficient and much more streamlined. And one resource that you definitely want to check out on there is called The Mixing Mindset. This is my book that I put out a while ago that became an Amazon number one seller. And in this book, I break down the step-by-step process for mixing your tracks, knowing what to listen for, what frequency ranges to pay attention to, when to be boosting, when to be cutting, when to be using compression, when to be using effects. It's all clearly laid out there for you so that you can make informed decisions with your own mixes and know exactly what steps to take to get the results that you're after. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the very end and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. <laughs>